Say sure the Music Explorers podcast. I'm Jim Jam, and as always, I'm Scoot Magoo. And uh, this week we are bringing back our uh, book club segment. Probably, I don't know, still my favorite segment that we do. Probably, um, and it's our penultimate uh, book club for the year. And um, this time around, we're we're sort of taking uh, a little bit of like a left turn in terms of uh, topics. I think previously we've talked about, um, you know, musicians in particular or, uh, you know, a certain, uh, you know, movement or what have you. You know, we, we talked about Radiohead. We've talked about Paulina Oliveros. We've talked about John Cage and, you know, uh, other, I, other, other books I, I'm not totally remembering at the moment. <laughs> um, in any case... So, we are uh, we're doing something a little different, is what I'm trying to say here. Um, whereas, because I think whereas before we're talking about musicians, now we're talking about kind of um, sort of you know the things musicians use to make music. Basically, we're talking about um, uh, recording techniques and things like that. Uh, this book is called uh, "Perfecting Sound Forever: uh, An Oral History," uh, spelled A U R A L. Ha ha ha. History of uh, recorded music by uh, Greg Milner. Yeah, I did. Did you did you like my laugh? <laughs> yeah, I will say that uh, oral history with an O is a very different kind of book that we didn't read. Yeah, we're we're talking about uh, the book Perfecting Sound Forever, um, and it is a you know like describes it's it's a history of recorded music in terms of um, sort of recording techniques. And sort of how they evolved from Thomas Edison, you know, turning, you know, a needle on a friggin' cylinder of wax to digital recording and sort of all of the opinions and thoughts that go into it. And um, I think Milner also kind of, um, he kind of structures this whole book um, as I I always, I, I look at it as like partially a history, but partially kind of almost like a, like a, thesis in some ways um because he he was very yeah, adamant that what, what were you gonna say oh so yeah definitely definitely got that vibe too yeah like he, the, there's an argument that he kind of strings through this entire book and i i feel like he does it well um you know we, we can talk about sort of whether it's a good argument or not later on but all i have to say is um you know the argument is basically just you know sort of what is the uh purpose of recording like what is the end goal and so you know it it kind of you know it's between these two arguments of do you record the music just as it is just as it's supposed to be heard or do you record sort of around the music as well is it sort of the best way i can describe it It, it's at, at times i found the argument to be a little nebulous in some ways um yeah, well, to, to me, I, I I thought it was interesting. That the, I mean, the way I interpreted it was, you know, do you record it at you at you're just trying to record exactly what you heard, or are you trying to enhance it, or you're yeah, trying to do, that, you know, kind of expand upon what was yeah you know, what was happening? Yeah, that that's probably a better way to look at it. Um, you know, I because I, I I was I was trying to write down in my notes like how to describe that best, and I that that is probably the best. Um, way to describe it is just, you know, is 
is recording supposed to humbly capture or enhance what's already there? And, um, you know, it, it's, it's really interesting to see how he kind of threads this argument all the way through. And it actually is, it ends up providing sort of a lot of really good connecting tissue between all mm-hmm. of the parts of the book. Um, you know, all the constituent chapters and everything. But, um, yeah, let, let's just, um, let, let, let's get into it, I guess. Um, what, what are your, like, overall thoughts here? Um, I, I actually, may, maybe, do, do you want to talk about, because um, I was just thinking, like, I, it might be worth just to talk a little bit about sort of where the history kind of goes in particular, because there are some aspects of it that I found really interesting in, in that regard. Um, just sort of like, you know, we have this, there's a chapter near the end that's, it's the final chapter is, uh, covers, among other things, uh, the exploits of, of reggae, or dub producer King Tubby, and, uh, but then also talks about, like, the emulator and, like, a bunch of, like, digital synths, all at, all within the same, like, you know, 50, 60 pages, um, which was, like, fascinating, but then, you know, it's also talking about, you know, magnetic tape. It's talking about vinyl. You know, it's talking about sort of the fight between different speeds of vinyl, which is still a thing nowadays. Um, though it, it, mm-hmm. I think it's, you know, you would know more about that than I would. But, you know, it, I, I, the argument's a little different now. But anyway, it's, it, yeah, and just, yeah, okay. I, I'm, I'm going to shut up and let you talk, so... <laughs> Yeah, I I'm glad you pointed out the the thesis angle because that actually um, in some ways it, th- that that's a, a helpful way to, to frame my thoughts as, as a positive. In some ways, it, you know, not as much. Mm. Um, I mean, that central thought of you know what is the purpose of recording, and you know, it kind of lends itself beyond recording to, you know, because obviously we're talking about the, the sound yeah. of it. But I mean, also it impacts the content. Like, what does this sound like when you, like when you see a band live? You know, what is, you know, either the individual elements or like, what are you expecting? You know, whether, I mean, certainly with vocals, it's, it's quite a, a common occurrence that what you hear live is very different from what you hear in the studio. Um, but hearing, you know, kind of experiencing that, throughout did feel very thesis like you know he was kind of tying that into you know the different eras different um recording techniques um to me there were there were kind of three threads three you know elements that he he poured into each section you know he would do kind of historical technical and then my favorite part was kind of the personal moments where um i'm not Sure, I am getting this right. Does does he have some kind of? He's primarily a journalist, correct? Yeah, that, that that's definitely what it seems like. Yeah, because those moments when he would talk about, like, one of my favorite anecdotes was from the you know early on in the book where, um, he visited someone with it was like a ninety thousand yeah. dollar setup and just listened to music and it was supposed to be like the absolute. The most immaculate, perfect listening experience, and just that's I mean, the, for the story itself and, and kind of the the questions it rose were you know interesting, but just I felt like that is where his writing really brought to life when he was talking you know kind of 
that organic element of just having conversations. Because, uh, I mean, all these things are very personal, both to audiophiles, you know, musicians, just kind of casual listeners. Mm. You know, how does the actual music sound like? I feel like it's something we take for granted a lot. I mean, especially the, the anecdote about uh, um, John Bonham, like the way that that's recorded, just, yeah. just like the very basics of how music and how sound actually hits your ear. Um, I will say, I mean, I liked the book overall, but those moments were my favorite by far. I think the, I thought the technical aspects and the historical aspects were definitely interesting. You know, I, I enjoyed them, but it did kind of feel like a thesis in the sense of like some of the, the papers I'd read for in college, for example, where it just felt like sometimes researchers felt like they were writing with their supervisor standing over their shoulder. Like you need more proof. You need more proof. And I felt like there were some sections where it, it just, he really like poured on like mm. the examples, like went really, really in depth. Oh, that, and I that, guess that whole Steve Albini thing, like that took like, you know, 10 pages. It felt like just, just, yeah. just to have like Steve Albini just shit on digital music basically <laughs> for just 10 pages. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's, you know, it's always, it's always a debate. You know, like, I feel like you get your money's worth. I and mean, we talked about that a little bit with the last um, book that certainly you, you got your, your money's both the um, uh, meet, me, meet Me in the Bathroom. Yeah. Like, there was so much there, you know, really, again, every point that she was trying to make, she just, you know, doubled down on, you know, tripled down on and so forth. Um, this certainly wasn't, you know, it wasn't to that extent. But it definitely, at some points, I was like, okay, I kind of, I kind of get it, you know. Yeah. You know, I, I, I may appreciate what the point you're trying to make, but I feel like it's, again, just really trying to leave no stone unturned. But maybe the pile of rocks was a little too big. I don't know. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm, not sure, I'm curious what you thought because I know, yeah. You know, I forget if it was at the tail end of our last episode or if it was when we were off you know, off mic, but you mentioned that there were some really dense parts and, uh, you know, the more I read, the more I really, yeah. Yeah. It it was, it was dense in just that, like, you know, I think the smallest chapter was like 20 pages, you know, like, Mm. like it's, it's definitely like it's chunky, um, when it comes to the chapter length. I mean, it's, it's a manageable length overall, but yeah, like that sort of thing. And I think at times when Milner gets very like theoretical and like, you know, quote unquote philosophical um you know it can it can kind of grind the pace of the book to a halt um and just makes it very difficult to read at times even though i i think some of it is is interesting but um mm-hmm. i i so you know in compiling my notes because i i i had so many things i was writing down as i was reading this thing um i kind of this like I, I kind of categorize things into like pros and cons because I just feel like that's the fairest way to look at this. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess in terms of pros, I I, I think it's really thought provoking. Just in terms of you know the questions that he's asking is you know just wondering like what we define as real in terms of of listening. You know I I think mm. that's that's really fascinating and sort of how that's changed, you know, regardless of sort of, you know, where you fall on like a analog versus digital debate, like you, you can't deny the fact that it's changed. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that on top of that, um, you know, I, I think it covers, you know, sort of all 
the points you'd expect. Though I, I, I will say, you know, I, I, I kind of wish there was more about the actual technology at times. Um, because like I, I thought this was going to be about like not only sort of recording, you know, like techniques in terms of like analog and digital, but I was thinking like microphones as well, like, you know, talking about how different microphones worked. And, you know, they, they did have a little bit, uh, he, he had a little bit of that last chapter covering, you know, the synclavier and the emulator and sort of the beginning of sampling uh, in, as like a musical art form. Um, I, I feel like, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm probably going to hop on this a little bit, but I, I feel like for the, in some ways he presents a very objective um, look at things in, in some ways. Um, I think his explanations of the technology that he does talk about is really fascinating. Um, you know, maybe that's just because uh, I, I, I'm a bit of like kind of a, uh, you know, a gear geek, but um, you know, I found that just really great. And yeah. And, and finally just the whole, like at the last chapter, I just loved, like I loved reading about dub and sort of, you know, like explaining it through the lens that he explained it through. Like I actually like understand why dub is important now, which is something I've mm-hmm. never like quite been able to like sort of, you know, I've never been able to make that calculation in my head. Um, mm-hmm. Now, on the other side of things, though, there are a lot of cons for me, um, <laughs> and I, I, I kind of group them into basically three criticisms, overarching criticisms here. I think one, there's very little input from the artists that are actually making music in this book. Mm. Um, you know, he he definitely talks about you know like he gets I. I he gets Neil Young, you know, and he gets like Steve Albini and you know, th- there are a couple of musicians, but you know, it's, it, it definitely feels like, you know, he kind of, uh, you know, it's, I, I, I guess th- this kind of goes to my second point is that the, he definitely, has, he has an ax to grind here. You know, it really feels <laughs> like it to me, you know, and the kind of thing, like I, I, I have this written down exactly like this is that this whole thing just reeks of this dinosaur ludism even when Milner is being his most objective, the entire thing just seems to say, it's not like it used to be, and therefore it's bad. It's basically Sonic <laughs> Ludism, the book, by the end. And um, Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I, I just... And, and maybe it's just because I, I... I kind of find the whole analog-digital debate to be really facile and, and just, like, stupid in some ways. Um... You know, I, and and it just felt like he was really on the side of analog, and like you know, just mm. you know, it felt like everybody he interviewed was always pro analog. You know, very very like rarely did they talk about, oh yeah, like this is a good thing that digital used. They, they they're just like, no, auto tune's bad because look at share, and then they're like, look, <laughs> like digital audio workstations are bad because look at Ricky Martin, and like compression like you know and in you know mixing is bad like i it, like it just felt like so like shitty of a like point he was making in some ways like it, it just got really annoying like like for example th- there's a whole chapter on uh or well the, the chapter is titled the band that clipped itself to death um i, I think that's the exact title and it, it's about the red out chili peppers album uh, californication 
um, and how their single scar tissue was so uh, loud in terms of compression and in terms of mixing that it actually would like radio stations were having issues even hearing it because it just kind of canceled it out. Um, And yet during this chapter, none of the red hot chili peppers are quoted at all about it, which you, you would think that the band who made the music would, you know, you would include something that about it, you know, and you'd think that they would be aware of this thing happening. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, I don't know if they would want to be interviewed within the context of, of this book, and considering you, you kind of outlined the angle he was taking. We, you, at some point, they must have yeah. talked well, about the, the, it. You the, can't that's find what I mean. any quote. It, it, it's, yeah, like it's, yeah. it, it's, it's not like those archives. Like, I, 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 I doubt highly that, you know, never in their career since that point that they have, they've never been asked about that. <laughs> yeah, they've never commented. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it, yeah, it, it's just that sort of, like, I don't know, I, I, I it, it just really got annoying, that sort of, you know, um, it, it, it just, you know, the objectivity just felt ruined by the end. Um, and I think, I, I mean, finally, yeah. my, my, my third my third kind of criticism here uh, is that I, I think that his, his argument of, of, you know, enhancement versus, you know, capturing what's there is, like, is interesting, but I think he really goes on a jag a lot when it comes to those sections, when it comes to those like philosophical sections, and I think it it almost becomes like a uh, like a postmodern cultural studies dissertation, in some yeah. ways, and that that just got so annoying after a while because it's like, I like, I I don't know I I guess maybe it's just the way this book is marketed, you know, because when you say an oral history of recorded music. You know, I, I, I'm thinking, hey, he's going to talk about, you know, the actual history of it. And I think he does to a point. But, you know, it's like these jags that he just goes on. They're just like, after a while, you're like, Greg, come on, man. Like, come on, <laughs> please. Yeah, I I will say, again, like I said, I like the kind of the personal anecdotes he wove in. But um, when we read the rest is noise, I thought, and, and I'm, I'm sorry, his name, his uh, name escapes the author. Yeah. I thought he did a great, like, you know, you, you would, he would talk about the history and then like, you felt like you were walking with him the entire time. And when it came time to talk about the music, it felt like he had been walking you, you know, down the street of whatever you know city we were in into the concert hall. And then, okay, it makes sense. We're talking about the music. I, I will say there are some times to your point where it felt like Greg, like, like when a, a character in a musical has like the spotlight moment, he goes out to the edge of the stage and just starts singing, you know, like in mm-hmm. you know, a solo where it's like, Oh, I guess we're hearing, we're hearing Greg's thoughts now. Okay. Yeah. Like it just, it definitely, that's why I kind of mentioned, you know, the technical, the historical and the kind of, you know, the more personal element. Um, definitely there were several moments in the book where it felt like they probably could have been interwoven a little bit better or you know, maybe, you know, some, you know, some sections could have been softened a little bit. Um, yeah. But I, I really, I thought... Oh, I, I was just going to say, I, I would say also just in... Sorry to interrupt. I, I, I guess I, I kind of have like a miscellaneous cons thing that I felt like weren't really huge things. But I, I, I found it interesting that there were certain, you know, 
these sort of technology or you know sort of applications of the technology and sort of certain music they just didn't bother to talk about which i personally find to be crucial to sort of our understanding of music you know and especially when it comes to these technologies i mean he doesn't talk about you know musique concrète at all even though it's you know it would fit in really nicely with his whole thesis um because you know you're literally taking recorded sound and like you know playing around with it and making something new out of it so like how do you even categorize that in the whole argument you know like it, it really fascinating in there you know he doesn't really talk about like you know something like uh disintegration loops he doesn't talk about the work of like john oswald or negative land who are both you know pioneers or plunder phonics which would be interesting in terms of you know uh, the whole sampling chapter you know he doesn't and this is probably the biggest offender here is is he doesn't talk about like lo-fi recording artists at all which i find really fascinating because you would think that, like, you know, he would talk about, you know, a like a, a band like the Microphones, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, because I, I just feel like for those people who wanted, you know, better and better sound, there were other people who were just like, I don't give a shit and, and mm-hmm. just didn't care. And then, like, you know, there's also this whole idea of, you know, there are a lot of experimental musicians who I don't really think care either way. You know, they just want their work to be recorded. They care about their work, not exactly the ins and outs of whether it's going to be on analog or if it's going to be on CD or not. Yeah, and this is kind of splicing a little bit of what you're just talking about with, you know, go back a little bit. Yeah. You talked about, I mean, I feel like anytime someone, I mean, I assume Greg would consider himself an audiophile to some degree. Um, you're right that there certainly seems to be an analog digital bias with, you know, weighted toward the analog side. Yeah. And my favorite modern example of that is uh, Daft Punk, Random Access Memories. You know, a lot, a great deal of Hubble was made about um, the fact that they, I'm pretty sure they, they definitely used like analog synths. I'm pretty sure they recorded it analog as well. Like they, they made this whole, you know, retro, you know, recording it, you know, basically, you I don't know if they said this outright, but like we're recording it the right way. That was always the vibe I got from, like, from that. Story. Even though you're using um, samplers on the album, and samplers well, are inherently a digital technology, but well, you know, that's you know, those are those are just semantics. Those those are just specifics. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I mean, I I like Random Access Memories. I think it's a good album. But at the end of the day, I mean, yeah, it sounds you could definitely hear a little bit of a difference from their earlier stuff. But what's the most important part? Were the songs good? Like, was was it a good record? Like, obviously, the, whether it sounds good matters. But again, to your point, what is you know what does good mean? Yeah. Or like you know rather is it? I think fitting is probably the better word because you know if you some genres and some music you don't want like I mean technically like like a Disney someone who sings like a Disney princess for example or not that you know what I mean whoever sings for them. They technically are better than you know any number of like rock vocalists, but like, does it fit what's going on? And is that what you want to do? You want to hear just like pristine? This sounds right. This sounds how it's supposed to be. You know how it's supposed to sound. Mm. Um, I mean, I would say no in in most in not in certain contexts. Yeah, I I mean, see, I I'm, I'm totally with you. It's just like it, it's yeah, it, it's it's frustrating to sort of see the you know how how he you know kind of prepares his argument in, in a way that you know it, it's 
you know, it, it's misinformed in that it doesn't show the whole actual argument in some ways. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I think just thinking about, like, sort of the way the, you know, the sort of how he doesn't really talk about the artists, you know, here is, is just fascinating in some ways. But I have this note down. It says, um, you know, like, even... Um, even Milner's comparison to uh, to the Bush administration that digital audio uh, creates its own reality is just objectively like not true because it implies that a- like any sort of analog recording is real when it really isn't. Like you know, it's a, like it's it's not like you know, it's it's a recording. The musicians aren't actually there anymore. They aren't playing for you. And so you know, I wrote this further: is is art reality? No, like, and people have talked about this, that it's, you know, people theorize that art is like a, is like mimetic as best, that it copies reality. The thing is, like, anything we create, whether it's a car or a painting or an album, is inherently artificial because we and not nature have created it. A recording is supposed to be just that, a documenting of reality, but we're still making that document. So any attempt to say that this is, that this is somehow real is just demonstrably false. So why do we get caught up in a stupid argument like this when people are making amazing things? <laughs> like yeah, and if if you'll stick with me on on this metaphor, yeah. this was another. I mean, I think it's a related topic, but um, you, you know, you know the the great British baking show. You, I I, I I know of it. Yes, you know you know. So one of the elements. So they have three different stages of of. The challenge each week it's like different types of challenges it's kind of like the same static formula um in the second one they do what's called a technical where like they have to make a dessert quote unquote you know like like it's a standard dessert for the theme of the week so you know whatever whatever the recipe is but i've always wondered about that because so at some point someone decided this you know they always talk about this is how it's supposed to be made like this is what it's supposed to be and i always think that's interesting is that like someone at some point just made the recipe for like a a boston cream donut and that's just how it is mm. and i find that really interesting because i think there's a there's a, a pretty significant or at least a non you can't ignore the overlap between audiophiles and people who are really into you know classical music and and, and whatnot and it's inter- interesting to me that like the correct way to play any any number of symphonies you know it's interesting to me that there is this ideal that people hold up but even even if you talk about the fact that like how many arrange or arrangements how many performances renditions have been done of you know repertoire classical music over Mm. time but also like when you go back to how music is being written what that was just their, you know, I know you love Bob Dylan, but that was just <laughs> the draft they decided, that's the draft they decided was done. Like, that was, like, the version that they decided was the piece that they were going to release. You know, there are umpteen, you assume, umpteen million drafts of that piece that are, you know, you know sheet music somewhere or whatever. So when you take that and on top of it, it's a recording of that, I think you're totally right. I mean, it gets into, like, we're getting a pretty metaphysical you know, like weird philosophical yeah. territory but it is interesting that like you're so fixated on like what's recorded correctly and i just feel like in all these you know every every layer of what we're talking about there's some level of you know, i mean like you've seen the recording boards people use nowadays i mean you tweak yeah. any one of those knobs a certain way it's going to sound different you know technically 
Um, <laughs> but but I, but I, I'm curious about your your thought because I did think the broader question, you know, regardless of how we answered it, was interesting. Is, is you know what is the is the purpose of recording to represent the material perfectly, or is it to enhance it, you know, change it, modify it? You know, the answer is probably somewhere in the middle and or both, depending on the context. But I'm curious where you landed with that. Yeah, I. I, I kind of think that what's more important is that, like, I, I guess I actually have this written down right here, is that uh, when it comes to this argument, I don't really fall into one particular side. For me, recorded music isn't about realism or perfect fidelity as much as it is about personal expression and imagination. And so I don't care which side a particular artist falls on as long as it best represents their artistic goals. And of course, that the music is just fun to listen to, enjoyable. Uh, which, ironically, is pretty much Steve Albini's uh, goal producing. <laughs> is, you know, <laughs> in, is wanting to capture the band how, you know, they want to be captured, basically, in some ways. Like, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, I, 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 for me, it's just, like, I, like, I, I can see both sides of it. And I, I, I think in some ways it's, you know, you can record, you know, you, you can use digital to scrub your audio clean as much as you want. But, you know, it's still like, I don't know, I, it, I, I think sometimes you just can't take away from like certain timbres of sound in, in, in some sense. You know, like you can use like isotope to remove like noise from your vocals and things like that. But like there's still limits on what technology can do to it. And so, like, it, sometimes I, I find the argument just kind of becomes, like, a moot point in some ways. Because it's, like, if, you know, if you record something, like, badly enough, there is nothing in the world that you can do to salvage that recording and make it, like, pristine. So, <laughs> it's just kind of kind of just how it is. But, you yeah. know, th- that being yeah. said, it's, you know, technology is always improving. Um, so, you know, what we thought was possible you know 20 years ago is just you know standard now i mean like that whole thing with auto-tune is like you know people are so used to hearing like t-pain and share and things like that when like yeah you know auto-tunes used so prevalently and like so um stealthily that most people don't even know it's there like it's because it's just the 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 program has just gotten that good that you can't really hear the the difference anymore in some ways. Yeah, um, I was gonna say I, I quickly uh, thumbed through uh, that that section in particular felt pretty dated. You know, this was written in two thousand nine. Like yeah. that, at this point, that's like you said, that's just so integral. And also, I feel like I mean the timeline obviously would work because the examples that I, I was gonna bring up, you know, I don't think they, they existed yet, but. I think of people like Bonnie Vare, who like he doesn't use auto tune all the time, but when he does use it, it's it's for an artistic purpose. Yeah, you know, it's for and yeah. like, like you know, obviously if if you don't like it, that's fine. But you know, it's it, I don't think it makes it an invalid way of recording or an invalid way of, of production. Yeah, even, like, like um, it'd be like saying that distortion is is like yeah, you know, not not right because you know, you know, your guitar isn't distorted in real life. It's but but it's like it, it's a yeah. tool, you know. We like it's so like recording is a tool as well, <laughs> so yeah, ex- exactly. And and actually, a recent example I just bought 
Um, I had a really good bull moose buy the other day, by the way. Uh, but anyway, mm-hmm. uh, I bought a Focus and um, oh dang! Apparently yeah. it's so, it's so good, and I can't remember the second. Oh, uh, Trace and Air, the first two Cynic albums. Yeah, and mu- musically, uh, I mean, obviously there's some differences, but they sound a lot like you know the progressive era of death and you know bands like Atheist at the time. What's what's the key difference with Cynic that everyone knows? They use vocoder, they use vocal effects, and yeah. it's well, I mean, I, I don't want to say it's it's they could sing otherwise because they kind of they sounded like '90s metal dudes who couldn't really sing. Um, but like, I feel like it, it's, again, I, I don't think it's an inherently invalid yeah. choice. It, it's just, just like the whole, the whole exercise of digital recording. I mean, I don't think that's, uh, I, I mean, I, it, this sounds very similar to a host of other, um, you know, like you can't stop the March of progress. Like, Oh, things were so much better in the olden days. Yeah. It's like, well, I think there's, there's a reason that people were improve on, recording technology i mean it's, it's the classic you know when i was a kid and your parents describe a, a super like inconvenient in, a, in like you know yeah but what, unfortunate what, when way i was a used... kid i had to walk to school that, that, that yeah that, that's, exactly. that's what my parents always drop on me um, i know no yeah, but yeah exactly it, it's, it's so funny that they say when i was a kid and just proceed to tell you like something just bad and it's like well i'm glad that that's not the case yeah. anymore i mean you know <laughs> there, there's a quote that he, uh, Milner writes, "Is says, uh, you know, predicting that the analog loyals will inherit the earth means believing the future belongs to those who reject the future. And, uh, like, that's true. Like, but then he also, you know, further along basically is like, well, at the same time, it's important, you know, it's okay to co- sort of take things from the past. And it's like, yeah, it totally is. Like, like, you know, I think part of the reason the White Stripes, you know, sound the way they do is because Jack White, you know, insisted on you know recording you know to tape and you know being like an analog uh you know being in that sort of analog environment you know but i i would also say that like that doesn't have to be the norm and so like mm-hmm. that th- that's why i kind of you know phrase sort of my thoughts on the, the sort of argument as that because like you know i would rather have jack white doing what he thinks makes his music sound best as opposed to you know just forcing him to to you know do something that is sort of against you know th- th- that's going to make his music or you know sound worse or you know sort of stifle his own process or what have you you know it, it's like I, I i just find it so you know like unnecessary like to just you know i don't choose on either side but i i do think that like you know those like i don't know the like, I, I guess that's one side of it is I, I think we're thinking about this on terms of, like, what the artists are thinking. And, I mean, which, to be fair, it's good we're talking about this because Milner definitely didn't, really. Unless it was, like, Neil Young complaining that uh, listening to digital audio was like listening to a windscreen, you know? <laughs> and, and it was, and, like, what I, I guess what I'm trying to say is is that, like, I think on the other side of things, it's like that whole, you know, I and this is what he was focusing on, is just, like, from the consumer perspective of, like, oh, analog sounds better, you know, and digital sounds cold. And I was I was talking to a friend this week, actually friend of the show, Devin, um, and I was, we were, we were talking about this exact thing, and I'm like, I, you know, I, we've talked about this before, on this podcast before, many times, just sort of, you know that analog warmth and what have you and 
I, I'm wondering, you know, is like is digital cold not because it's actually cold, but because analog is warm? Like, is it because it, it may like maybe it's actually analog that's fucked up, and digital isn't, and people are so used to hearing that like you know that that imperfection that they immediately strike you know digital as being you know cold as a result even though it's fine (laughs) yeah and i feel like we just we can't discount the impact of confirmation bias and nostalgia and all this you know like for sure when when audiophiles hold up the ideal of music, it just so happens to be frequently yeah. the you know the, the, the from a certain era that they grew up with. I mean, even like this happens for me too. Like, there's a set group of like older you know deathcore metalcore artists that I like now, just because I liked them back in the day, and it makes you know it makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside. But even like I mean, let alone I don't listen to those genres today. Even like contemporaries of the bands I used to like that I didn't listen to at the time, I don't. I think they sound like shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's just it's just about you're viewing it through a certain yeah, I, you know exactly. glasses. You know, it, it, like I was thinking, like what what if people like you know like some sort of like low fidelity audio? I mean, you know, like, like people you know find you know noise music and things like that to be really interesting. I'm one of those people. I think you're one of those people too. You know. And like that is yeah. like just objectively going to be low fidelity. You you can't really record Mersbau in a high, you know, uh, you know, a high fidelity studio environment in a sense, you know, because it's just going to be squealing feedback, you know, you know, yeah, it's, no. it's 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 like so. What what if people like that sort of stuff? Like you know, what if I'd like listening to a CD? Like what if I like how that, you know, sounds. Uh, but then oh, and what I think is really funny is that there are points where Milner like kind of like steps on his own argument in some ways. Like there's this it, there's that section that he talks about um, living the Vita Loca where he's he says that uh, Charles Dye, who is the producer of the song, um, working with Pro Tools, had digitally shaped the sound of living the Vita Loca into something that sounded analog. And so I, I'm like, OK, so it doesn't matter at all then. <laughs> right like <laughs> yeah i mean like, the, the the best oh no no we finish up what you were gonna say oh no the, 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 i i already finished what i was saying oh okay yeah. I, I felt like you had like one more sentence uh, no, uh, no, no, but no. um to me like a great example is and this is sound pretty obvious when i say it probably for you is uh is black metal i mean yeah. obviously there are it's, it, no it's, shortage it's fucking of, recorded on a potato <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, like, there's no shortage of black metal. Like, it's a genre that, um, like, there's some artists that just, like, sound bad. And there's some artists that sound, you know, I guess you could call it raw. Where, like, it's, you know, technically, the letter of the law, it's ba- it's badly recorded. It doesn't it sound yeah. good. But in terms of what you're, like, I always think of my ideal of a black metal riff. Um, I always get the order mixed up. But it's either in the shadow of the horns or Paragon Belial. I think it's in the shadow of the horns. It's, it's the one of the... Is either the second third track on Blazing the Northern Sky by Dark Throne? That opening riff, just like the way it's produced, is just so. It just enhances everything about it. I, it's just, it I sounds totally, so. I totally agree. I, I, I mean, well, I, I go to Transylvanian Hunger uh, and just, yeah, but like just sort of how that, like, it doesn't feel like there's any space at all in the actual, like, mix in a way. And it's all like distorted because it's so poorly recorded. But like 
that is like what I think of when I think of black metal. And I just think of like how perfectly recorded in a sense that is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And by the, by the same token, again, I don't want to say it's inherently bad because I think there, you know, there, there's, you know, clean contemporary black metal that is recorded, you know, sure. more convention, conventionally. And there's plenty, plenty of that sounds good, but other times the, what well, many times I would say like the quote unquote better recorded, just if you're being, you know, objectively again, big old air quotes, which you can't see me doing because we're doing this over Skype, um, <laughs> better recorded metal just kind of sounds a little lifeless. Um, my, which but I, mean, I I sorry like I, ironically though I I think that's what a lot of analog purists w- would actually argue for though is that yeah that like you know that digital is you know so it, it doesn't have like it's like its imperfections is what makes it great in a way and digital is just perfect so it you know it doesn't have that same character anymore you know like it, it it's um. Uh, it, it it's like the Japanese concept of wabi sabi, where like, you know, you're sort of focusing on the frailty and sort of the ability for things to be broken and still beautiful. And like, there's a whole like uh, there's a whole art form called a uh, kintsugi. That's the like the the Japanese will take uh, broken pottery and fuse it back together, and you know, actually fuse it with like gold leaf, so you actually notice the cracks mm-hmm. more. Uh, and it, the whole thing is just focusing on the fact that, you know, there can be beauty in imperfection. That in some ways, mm-hmm. an imperfection is actually perfect, paradoxically. But, you know, it, it's yeah. just funny how you can look at this from either way, and it's still kind of valid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I just, I think, you know, to your point, it's just, it's it's way more complex. It's, it's just not black and white. Exactly. I mean, I, I yeah, like analog yeah. records, I think sound better and worse than you know. On the flip side, comparable digitally recorded records. I mean, again, at the end of the day, you know. So I bad. Bad production can definitely affect your enjoyment of an album for sure. But great production can never save bad music. Like yeah. you, you can. I feel like you can. If the songwriting's great, you could ignore like, you know, mediocre to bad. Like, no, I don't think if it's horrible. Like, I think of um, "Order Ed Kayo by which I think is actually incorrect Latin, but it's it's mm-hmm. um, one of the you know in the two, like mid two thousands. It's a record by Mayhem. They went for like a raw. Ironically, yeah, they went for like a raw drum sound. And it's this. They're like probably the worst recorded drums. Probably one of the, the worst recorded instrument I've ever heard on a record. Like it literally sounds like they're hitting like dollar store bongos. That's what like the toms and the kick drums sound like. You know, I, they just it sounds. I, yeah, I, I I totally I get what you mean. Like um, you know nobody talks about this, but um I think it's, I think it's the Good Son by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Uh, it, it's like one of their best albums, con- or considered one of their best albums by a lot of fans, and it it it's it's just like it's recorded so badly. Like I had to when I bought my copy of it, I had to turn it up because I couldn't hear what was going on basically, and it got I had I had it so loud that I and I still couldn't hear everything because everything was so muddy, and this was the whole fucking album. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> and it's like I and nobody really talks about that. But then they talk about how Nick Cave wasn't happy with how uh, Let Lovin' sounded, which I'm like, that thing sounded fine. Like, <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. it's, it's, it's just it's so it's so nebulous of, a, of an argument that, you know, what defines, you know, a good sound is just really ultimately up to the listener. And so that whole idea of like someone having golden ears is just really just false, honestly. Like there, there's just no other way around it. Like I, 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 I actually, I, I wrote this down. Uh, it says, the moral of the story is that ears are like opinions and opinions are like assholes. They all stink. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, that's one of my yeah. favorites. But yeah, it's, it's, it's all in the eye of the ear holder, I guess. <laughs> the, 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 yeah. I, I, I like that even more. The eye of the ear the holder. Ear, ear, ear of the eye holder. Whatever, whatever the, works. The eye of the but, ear um, holder. I like that a lot. Like, genuinely. Um, yeah. I, I mean, so, well, I mean, what were you going to say? I was just like, the, the more I remember this anecdote is there used to be a record store in downtown Derry. Um, I actually bought a copy of Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen when I was like, like this is the early days of trying to fill up my record collection. Um, and the guy running the shop and his friends, the way that, they, like the setup they had to test records and the way they talked, it just, anytime someone says the word audiophile, that's the image I have. <laughs> of, like, middle, middle-aged dudes just like debating like, the, the quality of, of record and like you know turning the knobs just trying to get it just right and like obviously you know i you know i, I probably could buy better headphones a better stereo but yeah, i mean it I, sounds I good like to me can. and yeah like i could like like when i that, again that story stuck with me where that guy spent was it like 90 grand yeah it, I forget it, I think it, it was, was it was like uh, yeah definitely around 100 grand just on like a single turntable like not even the speakers Exactly. Like, and, you know, I mean, I, I think, you know, Milner recognized that it was, I mean, it was a cool experience. It sounded good. Yeah. Just in my mind, I'm like, that just can't be more important. Like, I'd rather spend that money on music. Like, I'd rather, yeah. like, if I was going to drop know, 90 grand, they, I would rather spend that on the records in my collection. Exactly. Like, you know, I, I mean, I, I won't deny, I, I feel like vinyl has, you know, I don't know. It, it, there's definitely more of a collector's aspect to it. You know, it, it definitely feels like you can take it off the shelf and you can kind of hold it in your hands while you're listening to it. You know, and, you know, a double gatefold is just really cool, you know. And uh, but, I, you know, when I'm thinking of like I, I, I don't have vinyl because I know how much of like a money suck it basically is, you know, and yeah. not to mention just the technical limitations of it, you know. You can only record what, what what did they say like half an hour, on on a chi- on a typical LP side, so it's like yeah un- until basically yeah and th- that's actually when you mentioned earlier you know like the, the thirty three and third and forty five like that was very much tied to the format back in the day and now they use it as a way to manipulate how much music they could put in either side and whether or not they could push something to a double LP so. It is. It is interesting. Yeah. yeah it, it's I honestly like. I've I've bought more CDs in the last. However, like I just, it's just so much more efficient. Yeah, exactly. Like, I remember. I, I think we did an article, or we did an episode, talked about an article about like, is the CD making a comeback? And there was that anecdote where, the guy came in wanting and like, 
you know, a certain album on vinyl. Yeah. And they had like umpteen, like umpteen really affordable, cheap used copies, CD copies. Like, I don't know, I want the vinyl. And like, they were out of it and the reissue cost like 30 bucks. Yeah. And to me, like that's, I think that that was kind of my thought process when I started really, like I've always collected both, but, um, I turned to CDs cause I was like, I could buy so many more CDs for yeah. like, I mean, I, like really not even a comparable I, amount of money. I, I just find like, I mean, you know, it's, you know, technology is always about convenience, you know, and, and, you know, I, I'm not going to say it like the, there, there's no level of it that is like, oh, you're too far gone or what have you. Because I think that's that's something you needed to sort of like decide for yourself, you know, your sort of position on things, you know, whether you feel like you should be on social media or not or what have you. And like for me, like CDs just make sense. I can listen to them in my car. I can just put them on a stereo whenever I want. You know, they're cheaper than vinyl almost always. And they hold more music than a single LP side. Or really a single mm-hmm. LP disc, you know, and so I'm like, oh, they they're they're way more portable, you know. And frankly, you know, I I'm not one to be, you know, um, audiophilic. I guess, uh, you know, I'm I'm unless production's really bad, I I tend not to really care either way. And so, you know, the sound quality is totally fine with me. Like, so I I'm like, why even, like like why spend more money on a product that not to mention I need to have all this other stuff on top of it to make sure that my you know my, my records are kept proper like you know you need to be able you, you actually should wash your records which is actually a real thing uh you did there are like if you go to there's a company called groove washer that they they literally make like these cleaners for for your vinyl records so you, you have to clean it you have to, you know, change out the cartridge. What is it like every six months or something like that? That I, I depending on use. Um, you know, you have to get a good turntable. You have to get a good amplifier. You need to make sure that it's stored properly because otherwise it can warp. You know, <laughs> which oh also can we just talk about this because they were talking about how like oh you know they like it's funny that Milner's all about you know going against the whole idea of like perfect sound forever. You know, like the whole like Max was it Maxwell that that said that, um, mm. you know, about the CD. How he's like, yeah, that's technically not true because technologies change, and like people like you know who knows if you if your CD will play, you know, in twenty years time or what have you. And I'm like, yeah, well, no, I, I think he was talking about technically like MP3s and things like that. But you know, nobody. It's funny though that nobody mentions that vinyl can warp. And that tape can actually like fall, you know, it can disintegrate and things like that. But like, no, no, they're just like, no, you you might not have the tech, like the like the technology, to be able to play your CD. And I'm like, I I highly doubt that that's actually true. <laughs> like, no, I I mean I yeah I, like, I, I mean, think it's going to take a long time for that to happen. To to be fair right. though, you know, if, if you want to sort of go with a different analog, <laughs> um. Uh-huh. Uh, I, a different a different example uh you know this is actually a huge problem with retro games right now especially when it comes to retro pc games that like you often have to have like just an old pc that's running like windows xp just to get mm-hmm. you know a certain game to work because it literally just cannot run otherwise um unless somebody has literally remastered the game you know so it's it's not it's not impossible but i feel like you know 
music is such a universal, you know, uh, concept for for our species that it just seems like impossible that somebody would just let that technology fall by the wayside. I mean, not not to even mention that, you know, we have an obsession with with, you know, retro technology anyway, Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, because we, we have people who are using old VCR players and stuff like that you know, for their own, like, things. There are people who are still collecting VHS tapes. Like, like you, you can look it up. It's, it's a real thing. Like, you know, so it's... I, I just feel like it's it's sort of a facile argument. It, it, you know, it's, it's just, like, a, it, the, 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 that's kind of a lot of this book for me. It's just that it, it, it just feels like it's making a mountain out of a molehill, in a way. Um, but, yeah, and, yeah, and I think that, that, that speaks to... The fact is, again, it's not just about how, you know, quote unquote perfect it, it sounds. I mean, I mean, like, yeah, streaming I, a show versus a VHS. I mean, I don't think there's much of a comparison in terms of convenience, in terms of quality, in terms of, you know, shelf life. Yeah. But just people, like, there, there's other elements of a certain piece of media or, you know, a certain way something was recorded or created or, you know. But also, like, you know, who knows what the future will be like for technology, you know, when it comes to recording technology, like, Maybe somebody will find some way to, you know, make, you know, bring back analog recording in, in some way that, you know, actually updates it, you know, for, you know, the modern day. I don't know. You know, there's just that's kind of the fun of it in some ways. Um, yeah, it, I, I, I mean, I, I feel like I've spent a lot of time being critical of this book, but I really did enjoy a lot of it. Um, I really liked you know, just the history aspect of it. Like, I really liked learning about just sort of how, you know, I, I, I guess just sort of how quickly the technology just kind of sprang up around this thing and just took off and kept evolving. And uh, it was really cool to hear these technical details about, you know, like how digital uh, audio works and things like that. And, uh, you know, I especially I really loved the... Like the final chapter, just talking about you know synthesizers because I just I I, I love me some synths and I love learning mm. about like synthesizer history, and it's funny that ironically uh, he talks about um, Roger Lynn who who made the Lindrum, and uh, I actually had listened to an interview with him like I think a couple days before I finished the book. <laughs> um, hmm. It's just yeah I, I I just find that stuff fascinating so I found that really really cool I, it's just that a lot of this book felt like it was very much um obsessed with you know just kind of this this notion that the you know the old times were better and that that's just you know if if, if that were true uh you know wouldn't we all kind of already be there you know like if if, if the 1950s were like you know america's heyday you know, w- wouldn't we still all be like wearing suits and going to work and having our wives, you know, meet us when we came back while they're making uh-huh. dinner and everything? Like, no, like, 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 the future is like things. Life is always changing, you know, and so it just seems uh-huh. stupid to pin it down and say that this is the definitive, you know. Not to say that it can't work, you know, something shouldn't work for you, and like, you know, if you like something, then go do it. It's just to kind of let this cloud uh, a book about sort of the history of something, you know, that I, I feel like deserves much more objectivity. It, it just seems like a real disservice. Um, 
I guess. So. But, I mean, I, I will say that it certainly got us talking. Yeah, you know, I think, for, I think for they, sure. You know, it, it's you know, like... I when we when they started talking about digital, like I was like I was writing down all these really angry like bitchy notes kind of about it, and then I kind of stopped myself and I'm like, wow, I I I like they always talk like he talks in this book about how visceral of a reaction a lot of people have about this stuff, and I'm like I I got sucked into it too. <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, for, for, for like n- none of us are perfect. Pobody's nerfect, you know. So, <laughs> Pobody's nerfect. Yeah, <laughs> love it. No regrets. Pobody's nerfect. Yeah. <laughs> um. Okay. Well, do, do you have any um final thoughts here? No, I just uh, uh again really enjoyed the conversation that we we took from yeah. this this book. I think you know if nothing else, you know, I, I I mean that it really raised some interesting ideas that i'm glad we had a forum to discuss here yeah same here i i i this was definitely a, a great conversation um so do you want to talk about albums of the week then i do yeah. and i this came just in because i was hoping i'd be able to talk about it <laughs> because i'm excited for the reason i bought this cd because i am seeing this band next week um, one of the one of the first uh, concerts I've you know, I like I mentioned I saw Slipknot about a month ago at this point and this is one of the first concerts post COVID that I'm well not we're not really post COVID anyway like yeah. it, it's it's one of the first concerts in a while and I'm excited for it and it is um, Stop at Nothing by Dying Fetus okay um, isn't this like the I've second time you've seen them yeah it's actually the third time I've seen oh. I saw them at Summer Slaughter. And then they did a short, small tour where they hit a few stops in the Northeast and they played. It was the last... I didn't. I actually found out at the time it was called the Bungalow Bar and Grill um, and the actual venue itself was about as nice as you might expect for a place called the Bungalow. Bungalow. <laughs> um, and as Dying Feast was playing... What's the album called, by the way? I'm sorry. Oh, uh, uh, Stop at Nothing. Okay. Uh so they played the bungalow and they said like you know thanks for coming out like i guess this is the this is the last show they're doing here and my friend and i were like oh well that, that's interesting yeah <laughs> um so actually they're, they're coming back to uh, jewel which is a nightclub um in manchester as well and this album came right after um destroy the opposition which is one of my favorite death metal albums period i feel like it, it perfectly straddles the line between you know brutal death metal technical death metal you know there are a little bit of a uh, little bit of like hardcore thrown in the mix you know a little bit of, of like light deathcore fare but very much in the in like just kind of extreme death metal camp and this one um i mean i still have a, such a soft spot for destroy the opposition but this basically you know you know like 19 years after the fact almost 20 years after the fact um it I think I would have guessed that this came either before or right after Destroy the Opposition. It very much picks up where that album left off, you know, really fast, really heavy, like the the trademark, like, like deep death metal <laughs> vocals that I just very badly imitated right now. Toilet Bowl. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, like, he was he was one of the first, or like, he was one of the most popular, or like, he popularized that style of just like really, just absurdly 
dumb low vocals. Um, <laughs> is Stop It so, Nothing the one that has uh, it has Uncle Sam on the cover, or is that Destroy the Opposition? Th- that's Destroy the Opposition, which okay. came out in uh, 2000. Stop It Nothing has to do with the hammer on, on the front. Uh, okay. One of my favorite things about Dying Fetus is that it took them like so many albums in their career to not have a bad album cover. <laughs> um, I, I would say... Uh, War of Attrition is oh no never mind that that was pretty bad. Uh, Did, didn't ooh, they? Ooh, just see that's bad. What, what, uh, yeah, what, what's what, the one with like the uh, the it's like the Skull King on the throne? Yeah, that was, that was gonna say like I I wasn't sure if the like I yeah the no never mind uh, yeah it's definitely <laughs> I'm just like I just I'm just clicking through. Just, just, you, you're just making your own argument here, man. Yeah, like I'm clicking through and I'm like, maybe that one wasn't the, oh, no, no. And then uh, Wrong One to Fuck With, which came out in 2017, is like a, that's a pretty bad album cover too. Uh, Reign Supreme was like this random bright spot in their discography where like all of their album covers are like this weird, like low budget collage of like patriotic imagery, but then like anti-capitalist imagery and stuff like that. And it's, it's, it's just like. It, 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 it's kind f- of like um, symphonies of sickness if, if like carcass was like overtly political on that album yeah exactly but it's just like you, you don't have any like graphic designer friends like, <laughs> like again and i'm talking about we're talking about albums released up through you know like their first album came out in 95 and that like up up to, up until 2012 their album covers were just like it, really there bad. There some great death metal <laughs> album co- like album artists too. Like yeah, like, no, for sure. Just for whatever reason, they maybe they were just trying to save money, and they were like, let's just slap some shit together. Um, but that's why I'm glad I didn't judge a book by its cover because I remember buying a cheap copy of Destroy the Opposition and just right out of the gate being like blown away mm. at how. Um, Actually, I think my my introduction to them was my friend had the song uh, "Kill Your Mother, Rape Your Dog" on his <laughs> his iPod, which uh, at the time in high school I thought was like the funniest thing possible. And uh, I've softened on it since, but I can still appreciate the <laughs> sense the sentiment, I suppose. <laughs> I I mean, yeah, you you kind of got like you know I I think some people are are you know very offended by a lot of like death metal. Um, imagery and things like that and, and i you know more sympathetic i cannot be but i i feel like there's uh, a level of humor that is going on with a lot of it like i i feel like very few like with like you know i think deicide is maybe one of like those few bands that like are like not taking the piss in a way um like most of the time it's just they, they, they're, they're just like these goofballs who just drink a lot of beer who just like think this is just like fucked up and funny in some ways um yeah <laughs> and i mean it, no, no, on, you, I, you, you're, you're naming your band dying fetus i mean <laughs> like no absolutely and i think i thought i read at one point that they like kind of regret calling themselves that but i don't know if that's true i think they think it's hilarious <laughs> yeah i, I mean because... maybe not like i i, I guess like there's I don't know. Like, I I feel like just because something is offensive doesn't mean that. I guess one is offensive for everybody, but like two, you know, it doesn't. Um, you know, sort of the reasons for it aren't always the same 
as like people are gonna look at it like like it's sort of like how like Steve Albini you know will use a lot of really really grotesque imagery in like old like big black albums and things like that and uh, you know that's sort of just his way of critiquing society it, it's like getting right up in its face in a way so a- anyway I we're getting way off track here <laughs> no but you're I mean you've you're totally right, and I, I think that, uh, um, yeah, I think when, when you, you kind of appreciate it for the lens they're trying to, you know, I, the, the common comparison is, is like like horror movies, what yeah. have you. Uh, I'm glad that bands have kind of moved, um, like, I, I kind of appreciate generalized violence more than, like, specifically... Like, I mean, there's yeah. a lot of anti-woman woman violence, which is just very, yeah. like, it kind of... Definitely, like, like uh, that, that targeted type of type of violence is is, is definitely a, a much more difficult sell nowadays. Like, I, I guess that that's the, I guess the most, uh, like, you know, bipartisan way of putting it. <laughs> I, no, for, for sure. And I think that... Uh, Actually, I, th- I think there was an article where Cannibal Quartz is cool. Like, uh, I think their bassist does most of their vocals, and he said that, and you like, he's kind of moved away from that because they, I mean, they had some pretty, yeah. Like, uh, I, I remember when I bought, I think it was Tomb of the Mutilated, and Lauren was just looking at the track list. And I still remember her when she said she was reading all the track titles, and she was like, "Entrails ripped from a virgin's cunt? What the fuck, Scott?" And I was like, "Yeah, that's a uh, that's a hard one to defend. I will say that's uh, that's a bit, with a that's, knife." Yeah, yeah, it's it's icon blood. It's like yeah, I, I kind of yeah. I don't really have much to say there. Just like it, I, I, it was I a different time that like <laughs> that that cover of the the bleeding like the Almart is like I love that album cover. But did you just no, because they, it's like because it just hints at so much without really showing anything in some ways. Yeah, um, no, but I mean you, you're totally right that um uh. Like back in the day, like I don't understand what Dying Fetus's excuse was because you know Candle Quartz came so much earlier. Their album covers are great. Like I, yeah. I mean, you know, they're they're kind of standard death metal fare by today's standards. But like, I I love those early covers like a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it, it, it's about that aesthetic. I think at the end of the day too. And I mean, I I, I yeah. guess Dying Fetus has their own aesthetic. You know, it's just not one that that I I think we're we're a huge fan of. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Anyway, well, why don't anyway. you? I've I've kind of blabbed quite a bit. Why don't you uh, take it away? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, funnily enough, um, my album of the week is actually from the book we just read, and it's uh, Blackboard Jungle Dub by the Upsetters. Um, you know, I yeah, but I was reading the last chapter of the book. I think on like Tuesday last week, and um, you know, I was reading about. It, I'm like, this sounds like 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 the way you were talking about dub. Like I was saying, this was just really it like clicked with me and uh dub was always like a type of music that i've wanted to get into just in terms of how musically like historically important it is and just how mm-hmm. like you know it kind of paved paved the way for like a lot of like experimental um music in 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 some respects and so yeah i i put this thing on and i i honestly did not expect to even have it on for more than like 10 minutes because i figured it would just be not my thing like all dub and all reggae has been but i really fucking enjoyed this thing uh it was really like a lot of fun it you know there there weren't a ton of vocals which is you know i I really like that you know most of the time it was just getting like you know what they call like that the rhythm you know 
and um just kind of riding that that wave uh and just hearing like these guys like just toast over all of it and uh mm-hmm. yeah it, it was it was a really really great album uh the the version i listened to i think is is because i, I guess there are there's like a reissue that has all these alternate tracks or something like that like it's a different track listing that's the one i listened to it has like a um a picture of a lion with like a i think like an army helmet on it uh which i i love the album cover um yeah i th- this was just really good i i you know i've tried for a long time to get into dub i've tried to listen to uh super eight by the upsetters uh and uh, i think oh, i can't remember the exact title but it, um there, there's like this oh, i can't remember who it is it's like like something to do with like vampires I, I don't I remember Fantano talking about it and saying like listen to this if you want to get into dub. Never really worked. This was like my through and I'm 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 really psyched about it. So yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I'm 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 really psyched. I, I just I love being able to kind of like expand into these genres. Uh, you know, and finally have them kind of click. So Yeah, yeah. for sure. No, I, I mean I, I mean famously, well, I mean in as famous as my musical opinion is, uh, you know, when, when, when country clicked for me, it was like such a cool, yeah, it was, it was just, it was so like cool when that happened. Uh, it's interesting how, uh, I mean, did you just say that he recommended a different album from the same band? Yeah. He, yeah. He, yeah. he, he recommended super so, ape, which is generally yeah. considered their best. Um, but I, I find that so interesting that even, I mean, you're for some people it's, you know, this album or, or, or this album this band turned me on you know, but like you know a friend had recommended something different um it's interesting how even like different albums in a band's discography you know can can turn you on or, or can work for you better than mm-hmm. another album i'm trying to think of uh i, I, I mean i guess like I, with, i'm with, trying to think of them now too yeah oh i guess with like the cure i mean they've had they had like a much more like almost popular like the boys don't cry era in the early days and then yeah they had like a much you know darker goth era in the middle period and then they had your disintegration is like much more like ethereal wave almost and then you get to the friday i'm in love days where they're a lot more you know it's yeah. like you know i mean friday i'm in love was played all the time when i worked at hannaford in the grocery store so certainly very different aspects so depending on like what your like what your background is when you go into that discography it might, yeah, you, know, you might have very different thoughts about, oh, this is what the yeah. cure sounds like. For sure. I mean, like, I know, but like, actually, with the cure, like, I, I think the album that got me into them probably wasn't Disintegration. I think it was Pornography, actually. <laughs> um, it's just a bit, but I do love like both of those albums a lot now. But yeah, like sometimes you yeah. just need like that right through. You need that right gateway. So. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well. Um, We've gone over our time a bit, but that's okay. And uh, we will be back next week. So thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening, guys. And uh, if you're interested... Uh, you know, if you want to hear more, just, you know, listen to us on uh, iTunes, Pod, Apple Podcasts, Android Podcasts, anywhere you can get a podcast, basically. Uh, we're on all of it. Uh, if you follow us on Anchor, too, you know, whatever works for you. 
And uh, definitely be sure to follow us on Twitter. And if you ever have any suggestions, topics you want us to talk about, or questions, anything like that, uh, be sure to email us. Yeah, uh, we're at, at Seishira Podcast on Twitter. And our email, I think, is Seishira Podcast at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, as always, thanks for listening. Yeah, appreciate it a lot. Bye.